Well, good morning. I'm excited to jump into our study of Judges. Michael started us off with the first chapter last week, and I've had a lot of people who have talked to me about their beginning to read through the book at some level, either reading through it slowly, maybe just a a chapter ahead of what we're covering on Sunday mornings. Uh, Some of you took uh, Dr. Michelle Knight's challenge to read it in one setting, and uh, I want to give you a little bit of help in that, okay? So I'm going to introduce and kind of give some of the setting for the book of Judges and give you a little bit of help for where we're going, what we're doing, what's going on in this book. The first thing I want to do is recommend a commentary. Um, I've got a lot of commentaries. I'm going to introduce you to a lot of my new friends uh, in commentaries that I'm meeting through studying the book of Judges. But if there's one that I would recommend for you, um, it is this one by Dale Ralph Davis. Um, on Amazon, it's $15.99. From Christian Book Distributors, it's $11.99. Um, it, it's, it is a great, readable um, Clear, reliable, trustworthy. He deals with a lot of good background stuff, but also he writes in such a way that it's very applicable and very convicting. Great commentary. There's a lot of others that I'm using. This is the one that I would recommend. If you want something to help guide you through our study, um, you'll see that I will use Dale Ralph Davis a lot. And so I just want to give you some help there. Also, I've provided some resources, and there's a bunch of them that are on the web. They're out at the Connection Center. A survey of judges is really helpful before you get into all the detail with all of the the confusing names and all of those kind of things. I've got three of them, four of them actually, out there uh, for you. One that's very readable by Danny Hayes that's a part of his uh, big uh, Bible handbook. is uh, It's just really readable. It's easy. It's simple. Um, A short one, if you're kind of like, bullet points is for me. That's the one by Ken Way. Um, It just gives bullet points. It's one page bullet points. It gives you the summary of the book of Judges. A little more thorough, smaller type, front and back. I had to do it to get it to fit on two pages. Uh, The one by Barry Webb is really thorough. He really goes into more detail in a summary than uh, most of the others. Um, Two more that kind of go together, both by Dan Block. One that's really focused on um, Dan Block's idea that is very prominent in, in the book of Judges, and that is that the Israelites have become the Canaanites. Um, he frames the book as the canonization of Israel. And, and he really talks about that in the one that I'm labeling their focus. It's on the theme and purpose. But then he's got one that follows up on that that is called The Relevance of the Book of Judges for Today that's really convicting. And I would encourage you read that. Um, the Book of Judges is going to be convicting. Uh, and, and so I want to just go ahead and let you <laughs> read it and prepare yourself for what's going to come. Um, And then there's one that we're going to have to talk about a little bit more as we move through the book. Um, I'm going to call it Yahweh War, not Holy War, because Holy War is kind of, a lot of people do Holy War. And God, what God does is not Holy War. It's different. So we're going to call it Yahweh War. Um, What what is the deal going on with all these wars? Um, And so uh, another one that's a a good survey by Danny Hayes on on the whole, the, the idea of the conquest and what was going on there. We'll talk about it a little bit more today, even in today's message. Um, But if you've started reading the book of Judges, in fact, how many of you in the room, if you've started reading any portion of it, just raise your hand, okay? So some of you are reading. So this next slide won't surprise you. Barry Webb says, Judges is not a nice book. It's rough and raw and confronting. It's not not a nice book. Um, In fact, if if you're out there and you're just going, wow, I was in church, everything's supposed to be nice in church. It is raw and raw. It is confronting, it's convicting, 
And, and I would lastly say it is needed for the church today. Um, it is needed for all of us. Um, certainly the church as a whole, but um, Fellowship Bible Church and each one of us, we need to hear the warnings. We need to hear the challenges that are presented um, in this book. Um, in, in summary, Michelle Knight puts the book together this way. Uh, the book of Judges addresses the history of Israel in the land of promise after the death of Moses' successor. A grim rejoinder to Joshua's triumphant conquest narratives that are in the book of, Judges, in the book of Joshua, Judges laments the apostasy of the nation as it neglected the divinely mandated conquest of the land and turned to the religious practices of Canaan's inhabitants. As they endured the oppression of one foreign power after another, the people of Israel spiraled out of control in a blur of idolatry, military occupation, and spiritual rebellion, forsaking their covenant partner and the laudable practices of previous generations. And we'll see that comparison of the previous successful generation and the generation of the judges, which is going to last a long period of time, and them spiraling out of control. Greg Wong, a great commentator, uh, his commentary is really helpful as well. He says this, containing some of the most shocking stories in the Old Testament involving murders, fatricide, uh, human sacrifice, gang rape, dismemberment, and even toilet humor, the book of Judges records events that took place in Israel's dark ages between the initial conquest of the land and the eventual establishment of the monarchy. Um, boy, this is a dark time. Lest we conclude that this is all about those failing, apostatizing Israelites, Alan Ross says this, This is not your ordinary lesson about people living faithfully and enjoying the blessing of God. This is just about as bad as it gets. When we put it in proper perspective, we will see we are not far off the pace from the ancient Israelites. As Michael emphasized last week, this is not a book that allows us, and not a book that I will allow us, to point the finger at Israel or point the finger at other people, because this book is a book about a religious community that, that allowed the culture. And, and there's a lot of times that I think we will say, how could they go so far? How could they allow the culture to, to drag them in to the idolatry and the apostasy like they did? And yet I think when we take a close look at this, we will see that this, um, this is happening to us. In the same way that I think if you interviewed someone from the period of the judges, they would not be saying, oh yeah, I'm turning my back on the Lord and I'm going this way and I know it's horrible and I'll be judged. They would not have said that. It would have been much more subtle than that. It would have been much more reasonable to them in the same ways that I think our idolatry, our cultural assimilation is much more explainable <laughs> when you start talking about it. Uh, let me set this historically. Um, if you look at the, the whole flow of the Old Testament, just to give you some, some dates, a Abraham lived roughly around 2000 B.C. Uh, Moses is around 1500 B.C. David is about 1000 B.C. Um, and then uh, the prophets are essentially between about um, 800 B.C. to 400 B.C., that's kind of the flow of, of what goes on in, in the Old Testament. I, I mostly want to focus on this narrow, more narrow period that we're looking at here. The exodus out of Egypt, when, when Moses led uh, the Egyptians, uh, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, it was 
1446 B.C. is a good conservative dating for that. 1446 B.C. Um, that's when he, he led them out. 1375 is when Joshua dies. Okay? So the book of Judges is, is going to start, last chapter and this chapter, with Joshua and his death. The, the consummation, the beginning of the book of Judges is the death of Joshua, 1375. And it's going to cover the period that goes up to the first king, Saul, which is in about 1050. So a period of about 325 years is what we're looking at. So this, this kind of, it goes from right after Moses until just before David, okay? The, the three kings when Israel was united are Saul, David, and Solomon. And, and Saul is kind of the, his kingship is the end of this judge's period, um, and the beginning of the judges period is when Joshua dies. So we're looking at about a 325-year period. And as we get into it more, I will explain some more of this. But these judges are, are working sometimes on top of each other. The book is not presented in chronological order. It's not a this happened, then this happened. It's this happened here, this happened over here, this happened over here. And, and they're, they're kind of moving all around, and um, it's not in the entire land. In fact, some of the judges are very working in very small regions, uh, and, and they're delivering oppression that's just in a, in a localized area. We'll talk about that more, especially even next week. Um, one person mentioned to me the names are confusing. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? So I'm going to list them for you here, okay? <laughs> good guys and bad guys. The good guys are the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? So, so when you're looking at Judah and Simeon, Benjamin, Ephraim, Dan, Manasseh, and Manasseh occupies part of the east side of the Jordan, part of the west side of the Jordan. Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, Asher, Reuben, and Gad. The 12 tribes of Israel, they're the good guys. They're supposed to be the good guys, okay? They're the ones that God is in covenant relationship with. The bad guys are all the other guys that I'm going to list here. Now, let me say something first about the first name on the list, the Canaanites. Canaanite is a term that is used broadly for kind of everybody in the land, all of the people in the land, so the Hittites and the Philistines, they would be Canaanites. So the, the Canaanites is kind of the broad term, although there are sometimes that Canaanites is, is the original people who lived in the land, okay? So the, the, the original people are the Canaanites. It's kind of like um, um, Native Americans. They, they're, they're Americans, but we're Americans too, but we're Americans, but we've come from all over. Um, the Canaanites, there are some Canaanites who were the original residents of the land, native Canaanites. But then everybody who moved in became Canaanites. But then you've got the Edomites, um, you've got the Moabites, the Ammonites, who actually live outside the borders of the land, but they're marauding and they're coming in and they're oppressing Israel from time to time. Within the land, you've got a lot of um, Bedouin tribes that are kind of moving all over and just finding weak spots that they can take over. You've got the Midianites and the Hittites. The, the Philistines are actually Greek. They live along the coast. You've got the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are the bad guys, okay? So this is, this is what we have. We've got the 12 tribes of Israel who have all of these other tribal confederacies some of them are, are very mobile and move from the north to the south. They're just looking for places that they can kind of take over. Um, and, and God has given this land to his people, the Israelites, and, and he's told them to go in and to settle the land, take it over, drive them out, um, conquer them. 
Now, why is it so important to get rid of the bad guys? All right? Well, let me set that up, and we'll have to talk about this more as we go through the book. But one of them is, um, these are not just other people like the Israelites who happen to live there. Okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about some pretty bad people who were known for unbelievable immorality. Some parts of it, literally, I will push the limits, but I can't talk about some of the stuff that goes on um, in some of these pagan religions. Um, so let, let me give you a little bit of setting biblically. Uh, when, when God is first choosing Abraham to be the Jewish nation, he's calling him to be a Jewish nation. In, in Genesis chapter 15, he enters into a covenant with Abraham, and he tells Abraham, um, you're here in the land. You're going to go away for a while. That's the Egyptian captivity for 400 years. But then you're going to come back, and you're going to have to conquer the land when you come back. That's our period that we're talking about now, when they come back to conquer the land. Um, and, and he's going to tell them, when you get back, the people in the land, you're going to have to do away with. But I'm waiting 400 years until their wickedness continues to escalate until they really deserve the judgment they're going to get. Uh, here's what it says. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there under Pharaoh in Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, punish the Egyptians, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. You're going to die. But in the fourth generation after you die, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I mean, here's, here's the summary. I'm not sending you back right now, and I'm not asking you to conquer right now, because the Amorites aren't as bad as they're going to get. But they're going to get so bad, the sinfulness is going to get so bad after this 450 years, um, that they're going to deserve the judgment I'm going to give, which is a judgment that says, drive them out. And, and if they won't go out, then you have to kill them. Um, and, and don't make any alliances with them. It's, it's a dangerous liaison to be assimilate with any of the bad guy list. Okay, Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 7. Right on the, the cusp of it, Moses is about ready to die. Joshua is about ready to lead them into the land, and God delivers the message of Deuteronomy. He says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Um, We're going to talk about what that means, destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? Why the harshness? Why no intermarriage? Why destroy them totally? For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. You see, if you make any agreements with them, you allow them to be around too long. If you are letting them hang out and then you're intermarrying with them, they will turn you to other gods. 
And this is exactly what happens, by the way. God's predicting this. This is exactly what happens. They go into the land. They don't drive them out. And they stay. They end up, and we'll see in the passage we're going to cover today, they intermarry, and they start worshiping the other gods. Um, God predicted what was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. He warned them to say, don't let this happen, but it did. Now, it's an interesting phrase. I've got it underlined there. He said, destroy them totally. Um, I, I'm going to say the word in Hebrew, harem. It's, it's that H that has a guttural. It's a harem, okay? And, and have in the back of your mind a, a harem, like a, what a king would have, a harem. Keep that in mind just a little bit. This, this word is, is really a complicated term because it can be used in a good way or a bad way, but in general, it means something is permanently devoted to the Lord and can't be redeemed. It's harem. It's permanently devoted to the Lord. In a good way, if it's permanently devoted to the Lord and used in the temple and camp, it's harem. It is devoted to him. Don't touch it. Um, it's, some, it's, simple, it's something that's off limits. If it's harem, it's off limits. Think about a harem. If a king has a harem, they're off limits, okay? I'm not talking about the morality of any of this. I'm just telling, trying to get you to think. A harem is off limits to anybody who's not the king. You can't touch it. Um, it's related to that, he, the Arabic word for a harem. In the Bible, it means something that can't be used by humans. It's reserved by, to be either used or destroyed by God. Um, when he says um, to totally destroy them, what he's saying is harem them. Harem them, they, they're mine. You can't touch them. You can't intermarry with them. You've got to destroy them. I, I'm going to destroy them. I will drive them out. And if they stay, you're going to have to destroy them because they're not for you. They're off limits. It's a pretty intense thing that's going on here. Um, let me read you one other passage from that Deuteronomy section. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altar, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. By the way, next week I'm going to talk a lot more. I'll talk briefly, but I'm going to talk a lot more about these Baals and Asherahs. Um, you'll understand why he's saying to do this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You're to be distinct in this culture that surrounds you that, um, that is, I'll preview it, it's very sexualized and violent and materialistic. Oh, those bad Israelites, huh? We are so much like them. And do you understand? All of the culture around them that was highly sexualized, very violent, and very materialistic, it made sense for them to be a part of that culture. Just like right now, it makes sense for us to be a part of our very highly sexualized, violent, and materialistic culture. Um, Chris Lou's in the room with us, one of our missionaries. He works in uh, Ukraine and uh, I know Chris has been here before. This is um, Auschwitz. It's in Poland, and I've had the opportunity to be there a couple times, but I've only gone in one time because I'd never want to go in again. The emotional impact, if you've ever been there, 
is not something that you just want to take your friends to again and again. In fact, um, Greg Carlson, the friend of mine who took me, dropped me off at the gate and did not go in with me. I went in alone and I toured Auschwitz. Um, When you, when you walk in, it, it, you know it's a grave place. You know it's a dark place. You know bad things happen there. Um, just like I'm telling you in Judges, bad things happen there. But when, when you walk in, um, and, and before you actually go to the gate, there's a visitor center. And in the visitor center, you can watch this little preview of a movie. And the movie gives you a, a a really good um, conceptualization of here's what you're going to see as you walk through Auschwitz. And the preview sets you up to understand what you're seeing as you walk through. If you didn't have the little preview, you kind of know the story enough to know, oh, that, that room is full of bunks. But I saw pictures in the preview that shows me how many people had to sleep in those bunks. Um, there's a room here, and there's a table, and on it is, is hair. Lots and lots and lots of hair. Well, the video lets you know that's for them cutting everyone's hair when they entered in. There, there's, just, there's enough in the video that orients you to the trip. Um, if, you, if you didn't see the video, you could walk through Auschwitz, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm remembering now, um, walking between the two sets of buildings on the left and the right and going into them and seeing the displays until you get down. Um, as I remember, you're walking through the middle of the buildings and down on the left-hand side, there's a, there's a spot that was the, the assassination wall where they shot the prisoners there's a big concrete wall behind it, and, and you, as you just imagine what was going on there. Well, if you hadn't seen the little movie at the beginning, you could walk down there and it would look like a courtyard. Honestly, it looks like a courtyard if you didn't know what happened there. The first two chapters of Judges is the movie in the visitor center for Joshua, or for Judges. You can walk through the book, and you can kind of see things. But chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, is like getting the preview of the movie of this is what you're going to see when you walk through the rest of the book. Um, I had a friend um, who um, went with me, Kevin Alexander, to um, check on one of my many trips over there. And, and we took him to, to Auschwitz. And again, just let him go. He had a really interesting um, opportunity. When I went through, it was a dark, dreary, rainy day. I, I can't imagine going through Auschwitz on a sunny day. That would just feel wrong. Um, but I went through alone on a dreary day. I had read a lot about it. I'd watched the video. Um, my friend Kevin, when he walked in, he watched the video. He walked into the courtyard, walked under that gate right there, and right in front of him was a gathering of Jewish men two older Jewish men, and a lot of um, young men. And that Jewish man was taking, the, the older Jewish man was taking the younger Jewish men through Auschwitz and gave him a tour. And Kevin just stood on the edge of the group and heard this, 
Jewish man give the tour and explain what had happened and why it was significant. Um, I'm going to try to be our tour guide through Judges, but this is not a good place. But it is a place that represents what humanity can be. Um, So as as Michael gave you kind of the first part of the video last week, and I'll give you the second part of the video, here's how it fits together. There's this double introduction. By the way, it's paralleled with a double conclusion at the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, it's going to talk about the war and the idolatry. At the end of the book, it's going to be the idolatry and the war. There's a, a political presentation that was in chapter one that Michael dealt with. Um, the, the conditions of the idolatry is there was partial obedience. And then in chapter two, verses one through five, God brings his sorrowful word to say, because you were only partially obedient in the war um, and you're, you're sad about it, but they're not repentant about it. Chapter two that we're going to hopefully get to in a little bit here. Is, is much more of a religious perspective. It's a theological reflection on what's going on. They didn't do what they were supposed to do in the war, and because of that, their spirituality, their theology, gets sucked into the culture. They, they are disobedient, and they, they become oppressed. So there's two parts of the introduction. Chapter 1 is the political description of their failure to execute Yahweh war and get rid of the enemies. But just like God said, if you don't do that, you're going to intermarry with them and you're going to become idolatrous and the culture is going to assimilate you. And that's what happens in chapter two. At the end of both of those sections, there's a reflection. Uh, The reflection on the first part is chapter two, verses one through five. The reflection on the second part is is really the very end of chapter three, verses five and six. Um, Mary Evans says this. It's an interesting thought. The first major section is presented without any editorial comment. What Michael talked about last week, if you'll notice as you read through, there's no editor going, this was bad, this was good. You're you're kind of left to to think about it and try to decide. It simply describes events without assessing the rights and wrongs of what is happening. In chapter 2, the editorial perspective is explicit. Last week when Michael was talking about the wars and the, the tribe of Judah asked Simeon to help them, is that good or bad? it really could go either way. When they cut off Adonai Bezek's thumbs and toes, big toes, is that good or bad? There's no comment made. Maybe it's justice. (laughs) Maybe it's talionic justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that God says is accurate, appropriate. Or maybe they're going too far. It tells the story. You just feel uncomfortable about it. It feels something's up here. Judah asked Simeon to help. God says, Judah... You're going to go up, and I'm going to give them into your hands. And Judah immediately says, Simeon, would you guys help me? You help us, I'll help you. Ah, there's no editorial comment. (laughs) When we get into chapter 2, it's really clear. Um, Here's here's how Greg Wong summarizes chapter 1, the first part, the first run-through of the introduction. Taken as a whole, this tribal conquest reports, chapter 2, the war, seems designed to highlight a pattern of progressive deterioration. So you don't see it in the middle. Nobody's telling you this, but you notice it. Four stages of deterioration can be discerned. Judah and Simeon are able to dispossess some of the Canaanites such that there's no mention of the Canaanites having to live among them. 
They get rid of them, and they, it doesn't even mention them. Benjamin and Zebulun are unable to dispossess the Canaanites, but they seem to be in a dominant position, and they allow the Canaanites to live among them. So they're in charge, but the Canaanites are living among them. Asher and Naphtali are also unable to dispossess the Canaanites, but seem to be in subordinate positions as they live among the Canaanites. See, it's the difference between the Canaanites were living among them, they were living among the Canaanites. You move further into the story, you get to the end. Dan is stymied by the Amorites and is unable to even set foot in their allotted portion. They're supposed to have a portion that's kind of halfway up in the land. They have to move way up into the north, and they, they just settle in a place that wasn't even given to them. It's just deteriorate. The, the victory is... And God has a double response to that. Um, as I listened to Michael's message last week, um, there's covenant faithfulness from God. The Lord's covenant faithfulness. He will not let his people go. He will not say, you're messing it up so much, I'm going to start another plan. He will be faithful to his covenant plan, but there's also consequential fierceness. He, in his anger, and you'll see his anger in chapter 2, in his anger, he's going to let them get what they deserve. He's told them numerous times, he's warned them exactly what would happen, and it's going to make him mad that they won't do what he wants them to do. But it doesn't mean that he's going to give up on them. And there's this tension always between his covenant faithfulness and his consequential fierceness. Um, which leaves you with this lesson. If we don't get any further, I'm going to try to make it a little further. If you want to enjoy the blessings of, of the covenant, then you have to fulfill the responsibilities of the covenant. If you want to enjoy the blessings, God is faithful. He's going to, he's going to fulfill everything he said. If you want to participate in all the, the blessings of what it means to be a believer, if you want to participate in that, you have to be faithful to the covenant. You, you do your part and you get to participate. Our participation doesn't really determine whether God's going to accomplish what he said. God's going to accomplish what he said. Our participation in what he's accomplishing is based on our faithfulness. And what gets set up in this chapter is is the distinction between two generations. And that's where I want to I land today, is the distinction between these two generations. We get the end of a faithful generation. The spiritual victors are Joshua and his generation. And, and what we see there is that experiencing God firsthand leads to faithfulness and results in, in victory. The, the generation that's going to be celebrated, Joshua's generation, they knew God, they knew him experientially. They saw what he had done, they, they rehearsed it, they remembered it. The next generation, you're going to see, doesn't know God. Here's what it says. After Joshua had dispossessed the Israelites, um, had dismissed the Israelites from this gathering, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. Um, these people serve the Lord, and this serve doesn't mean they, they came to church. It means they served him, they dedicated um, their lives to him, um, they, they worshiped him. This word serving it talks about your offerings, their money went to the work of the Lord. One of the things that I think um, the book of Judges asks us to, to consider is, you know, culturally, what do you, where does your money go? Where, where does your time go? Does it go to things of the culture or things of God? 
Um, and, and it's interesting, they served the Lord, they prioritized the Lord because they had seen all the great things the Lord had done. They saw them, they talked about them, they remembered them. Joshua was called the servant of the Lord. This is a huge title later on. It's the title for the Messiah. And, and he lives to a ripe old age. He lives to 110. And they bury him exactly where um, he said he wanted to be buried back when he was one of the 12 spies that went into the land. Um, and they buried him in his inheritance. He was one of the 12 spies. He and Caleb, who we'll talk about some next week, um, and he, were, he was one of the two spies out of the 12 who said, we can do this. God's on our side. <laughs> All the other ones died. Joshua and Caleb get to die in their inheritance. There's an application here for Joshua. I think it, it says this, in the midst of ongoing failure and idolatry, which is what Judges is all about. This book is ongoing failure and idolatry. In the midst of that, God will always reward the faithful. In the midst of our current sexualized, violent, materialistic culture, God will reward those who are faithful, who serve him, who are dedicated to him, who know his work and remember it. God will always reward the faithful. I'm just going to introduce you to this next generation. Um, It's by Dale Ralph Davis called Generation Degeneration. (laughs) The next generation doesn't follow I just want to read it. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for them. Then the Israelites did what is evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Asteros. Um, at one level, I want to tell you, come back next week. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the Baals and the Asteros, but I want to also tell you, don't bring your kids next week because I'm going to talk about the Baals and the Asteros. Um, but do you notice what's going on with this, this group? They did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. They didn't know it. It didn't mean they didn't know about it. Um, this word is a word that means to, to know by experience. This is the word that's used in the Bible, that a man knew his wife. It's know intimately, know experientially. Um, it, it is, is have, have commitment to because you know them. Um, it's not knowing about, it is knowing in a relationship. That next generation didn't know... Um, They just knew about. They'd heard the stories of what God had done. But they didn't internalize them. They didn't make them their own. Um, We're going to look more at this chapter next week. But let me me get you to a, a lesson here at the end. Habitual sin and generational drift from God will lead to idolatry and result in God's discipline. This is the message of Judges as a whole. Habitual sin, um, allowing the culture to become your dominant values, sexualized, violent, materialistic. Generations, our generation, the next generation not embracing our faith, 
drifting from God, because they don't really know God, it's going to lead to full idolatry of the people who are supposed to be following God, and it will result in God's discipline in your life. And the discipline in this book is oppression from the very culture that you're trying to assimilate into. Every week, I'm going to have a struggle with the next steps because it's such a, this book is such a negative book. I, I, every week, the next steps should be some version of don't do this. Okay, so, but I don't want to be so negative. So I'm going to try to work to come up with some, some more positive things. And so let me tell you a truth about God here. God is always faithful to bless, but also faithful to discipline his people. There's a lesson here. God is always faithful. He will bless Joshua and discipline the judges' generation, his people. He is always faithful. He will do both. There's a warning here. This is kind of the negative side of it. Disobedience can result in hardship and the failure to realize the promises of God. God said, I'll drive them out. God said, it's your land. But if you disobey, you're not going to get to really participate in the blessings that are available. That's the warning. So the challenge, let me see if I can turn that on its head and make it a little more positive. God's people must remain faithful in order to fully experience his blessings. Now I'm going to get back to um, what happened here. (laughs) They didn't know the Lord or what he had done. They didn't know his great redemptive act of bringing them out of Egypt, they didn't really embrace that and internalize that and make that real and significant for them. And because what God had done for them, redeeming them out of bondage in Egypt, and they didn't, they didn't internalize it and know it intimately, they drifted. Folks, for us, we don't look back like the Israelites to Egypt. We look back to the cross. And, and what we're going to remember this morning in communion is what the Lord has done for us. (laughs) We need to remember this. And so there's some sealed uh, units up here that have the bread and the cup with it. If you feel most comfortable with that, I want to encourage you to come and and take that. If if you want um, to have it separately, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And uh, we have a table here in the middle, some on the sides. There's a couple in the back. Um. I'm going to ask you to stand now, but as you stand there, I want you to, to, to realize that what we're doing now is we're remembering what God has done for us. And this isn't some past thing. This is our redemption. Christ died on a cross. He came, he took on flesh represented by this um, this bread. He he shed his blood. This is the real thing he did for us. This should be part of the way that we make sure we're not drifting because we're remembering, we're internalizing, we're knowing intimately that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, took on flesh, shed his blood for us. And this anchor should keep us from drifting. So rather than worrying about who's around you and what line you're in and whether we're going to run out, I want to try to get you to focus on what this means, what we're remembering. We're remembering a real event, the incarnation of the Son of God, 
his perfect life, and then him hanging on a cross and shedding his blood for our redemption. Father, help us to remember and not drift. Amen.